This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, as we read verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of God. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are speaking to your people today on a number of levels. Right? At once you are reaching us, reaching out to us, you're teaching us about your mission for your people in this world, and at the same time, you very importantly want us to love the spread of your word. Would you help us to see and love what you see and love? Make us obedient to your word and the great commission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today's passage is a passage in part about the work of restoration. And when I think about restoration, my mind immediately goes to those home remodeling shows that my wife loves and adores. And if you know her, that is not news to you. I didn't just expose you to some new reality or anything like that. This is just what she loves. But, but on these shows, you know, what happens? You know, someone hires a home designer to come and look at their worn down house that needs lots of work. And then the ambitious show-stopping designer shows up and says something. They say, I can see it. I see it. I have a vision, a vision no one else has. I've got something special to offer. I have a plan. Here you go. Uh, and then sometimes they pretend that they're going to fix two other houses and then they just forget all about that. Um, but they, they present a plan, right? They say, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. And when the work of restoration happens, part of what is required, in fact, the essence of what is required is a vision for what it needs to be, right? You can't just say, we'll just fix the crown molding 
and not think about everything else, right? We'll just come to that when we get to it. Um, you need a plan. And Israel is a, is a house very much in need of restoration, and especially we're talking about the time of Jesus here. And so what happens is we get a glimpse of Jesus's planned remodel of Israel in this morning's passage. And the fun of these shows is that maybe, maybe, is that maybe you don't see how these things all fit together at first. You have to slowly see how each action contributes toward completing the plan. But for the work of restoration, you also need people to come and actually do this. Um, and whenever I, I don't really, with dedication, watch these shows, but they are definitely on in my house. And so I will walk through and I'll watch. And here's what, here's what this is my perception as an outsider to this genre of TV, is you have the hosts and they, they draw up the plans and they're sort of the ringleader of it all. And then what do you have after they've presented the plan? You get this like montage of shots of this person in the house clawing at the the drywall and, and pulling it out and they're kind of mugging for the camera and they're talking while they're working. Meanwhile, there are all these people that are actually doing all the work in the background and they don't get their own show. Um, but someone has to go and actually execute on the plan and that has to happen as well, right? The house doesn't restore itself. And so the work of restoration requires a plan and it, it requires people to execute on that plan. And that's what's happening here today. Jesus is choosing out his workers. Um, even the workers who are part of the restoration, though, this is different from these housing shows, right? They also benefit from the restoration, right? This is their house that they're part of. And so, in a sense, even they and their own lives end up being restored by Jesus and his work. And so today, I want us to just appreciate what Jesus does by calling these men to serve him. Uh, first, the, the restoration of the individuals. We shouldn't neglect the reality of the individuals. These, these men who are called as workers in, uh, in what God is doing. Um, second, the restoration of the tribes. Um, this may or may not be something that you've noticed before, but in this moment, Jesus isn't just restoring these men. He is restoring the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll talk about that. And then third, I want us to appreciate the restoration of the mission. God has given his people a work to do, and as he sends these men out, he is renewing and restoring and taking up an old mission that God gave his people long ago that he never revoked and that was being neglected by his people. And so restoration, restoration, bringing back what ought to have been. Uh, I want us to see how Jesus is doing that as he calls these men to this important work this morning. Um, First, we have the restoration of the individuals. Uh, what we see here is a list of 12 men. Uh, he, he gives us all the names. But, but these men are being called as more than just followers. Um, okay, after three, I get to remind everybody to, to silence their phones. <laughs> um, does everyone look? Take a look. No one's crying at this part of the sermon. That's why I can say it. And, um, but later, there may be tears. Um, but these men are going to be Jesus's inner circle, right? They're going to be Jesus's inner circle. They're going to be with Jesus all the time. They're going to observe his, his whole mission. Um, you actually see a glimpse of, of what the apostles understand about themselves as apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, after Judas dies, Peter is, 
Peter is convinced there needs to be a 12th man, right? He, he just stops and says, we can't go any further until we have another man. And what does Peter say when he's talking about the, the qualifications? Uh, he says, an apostle must have accompanied them all the time from the beginning with the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up to heaven. Um, and then he says, whoever that man is, when he becomes an apostle, must become a witness to his resurrection. That's the quote that he gives. Um, so Peter's understanding of the apostle is that he must be a witness of the whole ministry of Jesus until he was taken up. And in a sense, what he's saying is, is what we have here. Jesus is intentionally saying, I need witnesses, I need witnesses to be with me all the time, and I need witnesses who will go out and tell everyone else. But before somebody can be a witness, what must he be? He has to be a follower. So we get the list of these names here. But, but see this very well. Um, Jesus calls each of these men, he, he calls them individually. He calls them by name. Um, for some of them, we know how he was called. We're, we're told about this in the narrative. We're told about Peter and Andrew, how he called them while casting a net in the sea. We're told how Matthew was called and taken out of his tax booth. We're, we're told about some of these men. And yet all of them are called as individuals from certain situations, even though uh, we, we don't know about Thaddeus. We don't know about his calling and how it took place, Right? But this is one of the things I always found so profound when I was reading Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. He points out that Jesus calls a man out of the world. He calls a woman out of the world. Anyone who follows Jesus is called as their own person, right? He calls an individual. He, he calls and transforms people. He, he places his call on us. He, he calls us to die to ourselves. He, he calls us to put aside our own priorities and put aside our own loves. And he says, take it serious and become my disciple. So I appreciate the individual dimension of this. He changes individuals. And if you've known Jesus, maybe you can even look back and, and you can see the person that you might have been. Um, you really can't because in God's plan, you were always going to be who you are. But I sometimes can think, okay, I know what my plan would have been for myself if I had stayed self-centered and I'd never followed after Jesus and I had never come to Christ and never been forgiven of my sins. I could imagine that trajectory. I can't know what it was, but I could imagine it. And maybe you can do the same thing. Maybe you can imagine that as well. Well, God has called you as an individual, just like he calls these 12 men as individuals. So please don't miss the individual dimension of God's work of restoration. Um, it's very easy for us to just go to the family or just go to the church or just go to society. And yet he starts with the individual. Yes, God rescues societies. He restores nations. But what does he do? He begins with the individual. All right, Israel existed as a people because why? Because God called a man named Abraham to follow and obey him. He started with one guy who became a family, who became a nation. Right? He begins the work of restoration with the individual. Uh, I remember seeing this time and time and time again. Uh, my best friend growing up, Matt Zimmerman, when I was in high school, the Lord changed his life. And the Lord changed Matt's life. But he began not with Matt, but with Matt's older brother. Uh, Matt's old, Matt was 
he would tell you he was the school bully. He was the kid you didn't want to be around. He was the kid who I remember one of my best friends getting, getting beaten up by Matt one time. Um, and here's what happened. God rescued Matt's older brother and saved him from his sin. And Matt's older brother, brother witnessed to him, shared the gospel with him. He read the Bible with him. And then Matt was changed. And then God moved from Matt to his mother and his father. And God saved his family, one heart at a time, one individual at a time. But he started with his older brother, right? You may be the only believer in your family. You might be. And for many of you, I think that's the case. I hope that you draw attention, uh, encouragement from this, right? If God has begun a good work in you, he can do that work for the rest of your family as well. So please, do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. If your family are not believers, that is not the end of the story. Trust him. Um, the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer believed in Christ. And, and it appears from scripture through this one man's faith, his family was changed forever, right? God starts with the individual. But that has ripple effects, doesn't it? Maybe you felt those ripples in your own life and family. Maybe you weren't the first, but maybe, maybe your parents were changed by the preaching of the gospel, and that affected you as a child. Once again, what does God do? He starts and works with the individual. Um, some of you may have come from a long line of men and women who follow Jesus, um, and some of you may be the first of your family to know the Lord. But please know this. God is working to restore you in Christ. That's always where he begins. He begins with the individual who, who hears the call of God and responds with faith. Um, you see Peter talk like this in 1 Peter 5.10. He says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He sees his work, he sees God's work as being a work of restoring the individual. Right? Before he sends these men out, first he calls them. And so, I have a very evangelistic application here just to begin with, and that is, have you individually heard the call of Jesus and have you responded? Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed the gospel? Um, I will say this, especially to those who are in the room who grew up in the faith, you grew up in a home where the gospel's preached. Maybe you're a kid and your parents have been bringing you to church. I want to remind you, you cannot ride your parents' coattails into the kingdom of God. Right? You, you cannot depend upon your family history to know security in Christ. You cannot even rely upon your association with the church alone as something that God is going to look to and give you peace with him. To be restored, you yourself must repent. You yourself must believe. You yourself must live the life of a disciple. And so my encouragement, my challenge, my question is, have you done that? Are you doing that? Is God working in you? See, Jesus restores the individual just as he restores these men who he calls to serve him. But I, I second, I want you to see also that it goes bigger than that because Jesus is also restoring the tribes. Even as God calls and restores individuals, Scripture also speaks of this corporate dimension when it comes to restoration. He, he talks about Israel itself being restored. If you're reading the Old Testament, and especially if you read 
the, the prophets, the major and minor prophets, you see over a dozen times God makes this promise. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Over a dozen times he makes that exact promise. Over and over again in different books. He'll say it in Jeremiah. He'll say it in Ezekiel. He'll say it in Joel. He'll say it in, in Amos. He, he's saying it through all of these different mouths over and over again. So you get the point. I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people Israel. This is where I get this idea of restoration, by the way, as sort of my motif for how we're thinking about what he's doing here because it's a promise that he will restore Israel. They've heard this a lot by the time of John the Baptist. They've heard this a lot by the time of Jesus. And you can imagine how this promise colors the expectation of God's people in the time of the New Testament, right? They're still awaiting this work. They, they think their fortunes still haven't been restored. They're still waiting. In fact, in fact, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus dies, he's walking with those two men on the road to Emmaus, and they're very disappointed. And why are they disappointed? One of them says, we thought Jesus was the one to restore Israel. So they have this expectation of restoration in their minds. They're attaching it to the idea of a Messiah. And because they think Jesus is dead and has not risen, they are sad. One of the crucial passages we need to look at comes from Jeremiah 33. Uh, in, in Jeremiah 33, God is telling Israel that he is hiding his face from them because of their evil so he's telling them, there is something that has to happen. I'm hiding my face from you. You are going to suffer. And then he says something else, though. He says, but behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Right, do you hear this restoration language? And he, he's, he's specifically applying this to the work of forgiveness. Right? When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, understand that restoration is happening before your eyes. Jesus' ministry is the work of restoration. Before a house can be restored, what has to happen, though, it has to be gutted. And uh, I know this also on the renovation shows. They call it Demo Day. I don't know if everyone does that or if just Joanna Gaines has a trademark on that or something. They call it Demo Day. And in the time of Jeremiah, it's like, he's, it's like God is saying, Demo Day is coming. He's telling, telling Israel, Demo Day is coming. You're going to be demolished. This house is going to be gutted. But then something great's coming then something even greater is going to happen once Demo Day is finished. So, so God says, yes, this city is going to fall because of its sin, but I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to restore. I'm going to make it better. Right? He even says, I'm going to rebuild them as they were at first. Um, here Jesus comes. What does Jesus do? It's like he wants everyone to know this promise is coming true in your midst. It's coming true. This thing that I said I would do, I, I, I'm doing it. Right? These tri tribes are not and will not stay demolished forever. He we're going to rebuild. Um, I don't know if you need this history of the 12 tribes, but I want you to understand where they're at by the time of Jesus. Um, the, the number 12 is intentional. We talked about that. Peter talks about that. 
um, so intentional that when Jesus, Judas dies, they know they need someone to replace him, right? Uh, there had to be 12. Um, and that's because there's a promise being made here, and the promise is Israel is being restored. Think about what the 12 tribes were by the time of, of Jesus. There were 12 tribes of Israel originally. All of them were Abraham's sons. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. There's Levi. Levi has no land because Levi was the tribe of the priests. Instead, what did they have? They had six cities of refuge. Uh, Joseph had no land, but he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they got Joseph's portion. So all of the tribes of the northern and southern kingdoms were absorbed when Assyria and Babylon came against them, right? They come in different stages. They come at different times, about a couple hundred years apart. But eventually, both of them are taken away. And if you were to, to look for the 12 tribes, they would not exist in an identifiable form after they get carried away. Um, some of those who came back could probably tell you what tribe they were originally from, but when they came back, they were intermingled now. They didn't have their own land anymore. Um, many of them never returned. And even those who did return were eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. And then they were conquered by Rome. And so when you get to the time of, of Jesus, Israel has fallen an awful long way. Uh, and the 12 tribes barely exist, except maybe as a nation. And so by the first century, the 12 tribes, as we knew them, had been broken. And yet in their broken state, Jesus said, I'm restoring Israel. Right? He's, he says, I'm keeping that promise, that promise that I made to Abraham, that promise I made to Jeremiah. It's very much alive. Um, the promise that there would be a prophet like Moses, very much alive. The promise that David's descendant would sit on the throne and rule the 12 tribes of Israel forever, very much alive. Here is the greatness of Jesus, or one of the greatnesses of Jesus. By appointing 12 apostles, Jesus is saying, Israel isn't gone, it's only just begun. He's restoring the tribes of Israel in the 12 that he calls here. Now third, notice and appreciate the restoration of the mission. What mission am I talking about? What mission needs to be restored what mission is on life support? Well, look at this passage. Jesus calls these individuals. He picks 12 of them. He means something by that. We've seen that. But then what does he call them to do here? He says, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So notice that Jesus begins with Israel. He begins with Abraham's physical descendants. Jesus begins with the Jewish people first. Uh, the people of Israel have the Messiah in their midst. They have a responsibility, that responsibility to, to hear the message of the Messiah that God promised he would bring, and, and they have a responsibility to believe it. He says to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, they're supposed to go and say, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is come, the, the anointed one that you've been waiting for hasn't delayed believe. That's what they're supposed to do. Go from place to place and tell the Jewish people, your king is here. Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? He calls them, he calls them the lost sheep. He sees that they're, they're see there, do you see the affection there? 
Do you see the love that he has for these people? These are people that he weeps over because they're sheep without a shepherd. We saw that last week, right? His, his heart belongs with the Jewish people. And Paul, Paul adopts the same practice. He adopts the same practice in his ministry. He's very consistent about it. Paul always goes to the Jews first when he goes to a new city. So he, he usually aims for the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue. If he can't get to the synagogue, he'll ask the leaders of the synagogue to come to him. And so his mission and his ministry in its infancy were focused on the Jewish people. The apostles initially lived within the confines of Israel. They had a mission to tell them about the coming salvation. And Paul talks about why he did that. He talks about his motivation. He said that he, said he was a minister to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So he sees his role as shining a light on the fact that God in Christ has kept his promises to them. Right? God had a, had a special covenant relationship with Abraham's family. And so, so Jesus at the outset is focused on these people, the people of Abraham. He's confirming the promise. He's proving that God keeps his covenant. And his apostles are given the same directions. God is faithful. He sent that Savior. He sent your Savior to you. And so his plan is for the Jewish people to have no excuse, right? They can't say, Jesus came and he ignored us. He, he, he went right around us. He bypassed us. He, he went straight to the Gentiles. He just showed up, boop, landed in, 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 on earth, and was born incarnate, and then he just left. And he ignored us. And the reality is Jesus' work doesn't remain within the house of Israel. It doesn't. Um, after Jesus' death, what happens? The veil of the temple is torn. Paul says that in Jesus' death, he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities. The, the holy of holies, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was meant to, to house the presence of God, is now open and it's available to all. Jesus himself becomes the temple now where we meet with God, wherever we are. We're no longer in Israel. We're no longer in Jerusalem. We can know God anywhere if we are in Christ. And the reason I call this third point the, the restoration of mission is that Israel always had a mission that was meant to go beyond the bounds of itself. It was meant to move outward. Right? You see this from the very beginning. What God's most fundamental mission that he gives to people in scripture, the one that he gives to the first humans, as soon as he creates them, he tells us in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, sometimes it gets called the dominion mandate, right? The mandate that we fill the earth, that we spread throughout the earth. Even Abraham... Think of it like this. Abraham was just another Gentile like everybody else. He's just another Gentile. And we see, though, that the covenant would eventually be of benefit to the Gentiles at the very beginning with God's promise to Abraham. We see this very early on. The Gentiles are baked into the first promise. Because then he goes to Abraham, and what does he say to this Gentile? He says to him, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right? From the beginning, God is thinking about the Gentiles. So it doesn't stop with Abraham's children. 
Um, Psalm 72, 17 calls for people to be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. All nations. That's, that's bigger than Israel, right? That's the world. That's the people of this earth. In Jesus' own ministry, he predicted in Luke 13, 29, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So as the blessings to the nation spread, don't think of it as a separate blessing. It's not a different, distinct blessing from what it began as, right? The idea is to proclaim the kingdom of God beyond the boundaries of Israel, but not a different kingdom. It's the same kingdom. It's the kingdom of God that he was building, starting with Abraham. And so we see in the New Testament that the definition of what Israel is greatly expands from the way the Jewish people in that time thought of it, right? Many in the time of the New Testament, if you ask them, what does it mean to be Jewish? They would say, look, I'm a descendant of Abraham. That's what it means to be Jewish. And that's what they thought of. And then we learn, though, that Israel's bigger than just an ethnicity. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 9, verse 6? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Right? There are people out there who are born of Abraham and they don't belong to Israel. And then he expands the definition of Israel even bigger. He says, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Right? Those who truly believe the promise of Abraham are his children not those who genetically are derived from the man named Abraham. So what, what's happening here is not, not that God in the New Testament is replacing Israel. He's just showing the true nature of Israel. He's showing what Israel has always been, and he's inviting all the nations to join by faith. He is expanding and growing the family. He is not shrinking the family. Um, those of you who have who've adopted children, you know the joy of taking someone who was not your family and welcoming them and making them a true part of your family, right? When you adopt, you are not replacing your children when you adopt. Instead, you're growing your family, right? Same principle applies with Christians. Gentiles, we are adopted, we are engrafted into Israel, we are as truly part of Israel as those who are physical descendants of Abraham. In fact, he says, those who are physical descendants and don't trust in the Savior are not Israel, they're not true sons, and those who trust in Christ are true sons. Um, you see this in the New Testament, sometimes the New Testament just refers to Christians as the Israel of God. If you look at Galatians 6.16, he just calls Christians the Israel of God. Um, James opens his letter by referring to believers as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, he just, he's just telling us, he's saying, you're, you're Israel. I'm writing these letters to Israel is, who he's, is what James is saying. Um, but notice also these writers don't talk as if Christians are replacements for the tribe of Israel. Uh, this is a redeemed and renewed Israel that's formed by shaping and growing the church within a kingdom that will reach beyond the genetic limits of the people of Israel. We are engrafted into the plant of Israel. If you're a Gentile, you've been engrafted and you are as much a real part of the plant as those sons of Abraham. Now, I hope 
This is the part where I go, ah, is this a sermon? You know, or is this a Sunday school lecture? Um, Here's what's really happening. We are seeing a Savior who honors the promises that he makes. It's what he's doing here when he sends these men out, right? We have a Savior who, who makes covenants and relates to his people through those covenants. And, and yet we also know that he is so gracious that he lets anyone receive his grace through faith. A promise given through Abraham offered to the world a promise to the nations, a blessing for the nations. And by the time of Jesus, what happened? Israel had drawn into itself. It had turned inward. It was so focused on its own survival that it had forgotten the mission that it had. Israel was so focused on itself and what, and what it needed and what, and what they wanted that they had forgotten that God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. They might as well have just set that one aside. We're not going to be a blessing to the nations. We're going to be a blessing to us. There's no sense in which Israel was blessing the nations. And in Christ, that is changing. And Jesus sees that. Right? We've been called to spread out, to be fruitful, to multiply. We have been called in doing so to be a blessing to the nations. Do you know what that means? I, I feel challenged by this. I, God is challenging us with this. He's challenging me. I, I know it. Because it is very, very tempting to look at the, the threats around us, just like the Jewish people did, and say, the world out there wants to destroy us. It's, it's easy to come to that conclusion. In fact, I will dare say, you're not delusional if you think that, right? The world out there wants to destroy us, so what do we do? What do we do if somebody wants to destroy us? We circle the wagons, right? People want to curtail our freedoms. What do we do? We flee to the mountains. Uh, my coworkers think I'm a bigot. Maybe I should withdraw from the world. Yet what does God do? What does Jesus do? He sends his disciples out into the danger. <laughs> he sends them out into the danger. He, he sends them out without security. He, he sends them without gold, without silver. He sends them without a bag. He, he sends them without extra clothes. His people are homeless, right? They're going out homeless. without a roof over their head necessarily, without any promises of comfort. We as 21st century Americans, are, are, we are obsessed with security. We're obsessed with security. I've said before, it's our idol. Um, health is our obsession. Safety is our obsession. We, we are. I don't even feel timid saying that. It's, it's our idol. And so Jesus here, do you feel him pushing back on your idol? If, if you want safety, and I suspect you do because you live in 21st century America. If you want safety and health and comfort, do you feel him pushing back on you when you read this section where he sends these men out without gold or silver or two tunics or sandals or a staff? What he's doing is the opposite of softening the call. He's hardening it. He's sharpening the call. It almost seems vindictive. It's not because he loves them. But it almost seems vindictive. He intentionally takes away their cloak and their bag and their security. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. 
we shouldn't be too quick to soften what happens here. You know, it, it's easy to read this and just go, well, he's not telling us to do that. This is a specific time and place. Yes, that's true. This isn't necessarily a direct command to you that you can't have two pairs of shoes, okay? Um, but we should also admit if we find ourselves fleeing from the force of this, right? There's a difference between knowing a command's not for us and seeing him make a command to somebody and, and hoping he never makes it of us, right? <laughs> and, and how quick are we to try to get away from the idea that God might push us to be that uncomfortable? I'm super quick. I've got all my reasons why I don't think he would make me do this, right? And I want to have my reasons. But what if he did? What if he called you to be homeless? What if, what if his call meant hardship? What if his call meant rejection? What if his call meant a lack of security? At one of those points, would you be like Peter in our reading today and says, I don't, say, I don't know him? Like, it's too far. I've been pressed too much. I've been, uh, you're asking too much of me. I can't do this anymore. No, I don't know him. Um, I don't think we like to think about that, but maybe we should think about it. Would you go into the unknown without so much as a bag if that's what faithfulness looked like? If you couldn't see what was around the corner, but he called you to do that, would you do it? That's the story of missionaries the world over, right? It's the story of the modern missions movement. Um, it's the story of the early church, right? People who risked life and limb. Didn't just risk it, they gave it. That's the story of the reformers. It's the story of the Huguenots in France. It's the story of the nonconformists in England, uh, many of whom laid down their lives amid the flames. Do you see yourself in their line and their story? Or do you think there's a way that you can do it all, have it all, be safe, be comfortable? You may not go overseas, but we, we saw last week, there's a, God has got a mission for us. He, he intends us to be witnesses where we are. We're meant to be missionaries here. Will we be faithful or, or are we going to, at a certain point, pull back and self-preserve? Uh, that's, a, that's a choice that you may one day be required to make. I don't know what the world's going to be like in the next 20 years. Some of us have decided it's going to be horrible. We don't know it. God hasn't told us it's going to be horrible, but many of us have decided it's going to be horrible. But many have had to make that choice before us. And many, long after us, will have to when we are long gone. In 1885, there were seven students from Cambridge University. They're called the Cambridge Seven. There's a book by that name, the Cambridge Seven. I recommend it. Um, but these seven students from Cambridge University made a decision. And the decision they made was to leave the wealth and comfort of England so that they could go minister to the people of China. And they were not entirely sure what was going to await them when they got there. Uh, but not unlike what Jesus calls his apostles to do, they had to give up what they had. They had to give up their comfort. They had to give up the life that they knew. And the night before they were set out to leave, uh, one of the seven, his name was Stanley Smith, was speaking to a crowd. And, and several of the seven got up and spoke to this crowd and explained their motivations for leaving and why they were going to China and the importance of going to China. And, and I wonder if you would hear what, what Stanley Smith had to say. Yeah. 
perhaps we may not think God is calling us to go overseas, but, but would, would we at least answer his call to go across the street? So listen to what Stanley Smith says. I'm actually going to end with this quote. Let us try and take a bird's eye view of this world. I would just call your attention to this fact that the knowledge of this precious Jesus, who I hope to most of us is everything in the world, is absolutely wanting to thousands and millions of our brethren and sisters to the present day. What are we going to do? How can one leave such an audience as this? It seems to me as if Christ has come right into your midst and has looked into the face of you, men and women, young and old and middle-aged. He would take hold, take, he would take hold with loving hands of each one and looking into your eyes, point to the wounds in his pierced side and ask, lovest thou me? And, and you would say, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. What is the test of this love? If you love me, keep my commandments. And what master do you command? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, with full knowledge of what you were doing, with full knowledge of the dangerous world in which we live, you did send your people out without worldly security and comfort. It is a reproof to us, O oh God, that before we act in obedience, our first impulse is usually to ask, how can I obey and be comfortable? Forgive us, O oh God. Forgive me for not attempting to be wise not for attempting to be shrewd as serpents. Forgive us for our lack of trust. Give us a hint of the, the vision that you have for this world that men and women, boys and girls from all over the world would be taken with the Savior. Give us a hunger to see your word bear fruit, even if it comes at great cost to us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.